right, so hermeneutics is the study of how to interpret, basically. And obviously, it's, we're concerned about Scripture. But what we're going to focus on is what could be called, sometimes it's, and maybe all these superlatives aren't attached to it, but literal, historical, grammatical approach to studying the Bible. And we'll delve into over the next couple of weeks kind of what that looks like. But um, why is proper hermeneutics important, though? Um, well, because God's Word is important. So um, we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, this is probably a good passage if you don't have this one memorized. This is a good one to memorize. But every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. So, as we're trying to emphasize, every member ministry, I mean, every good work obviously has to be clarified in terms of if someone breaks their leg and they have to have a bone set or something, the Word of God's probably not going to help you with that. But good work defined in terms of ministry, furthering God's kingdom, preaching the gospel. God's word is enough, it, and it equips us for that. So knowing God's word, this is why, you know, when we're, we're doing this Bible reading and we're trying to be on the same page, we're all reading the same thing, being open where we can talk to each other and say, listen, I don't understand what in the world is going on in the book of Numbers. And you're not alone, because you thought Leviticus was bad. These first ten chapters of Numbers is really bad. So... But it's also important to know that all of Scripture is inspired by God. It's important. So it's important to know, how do I handle this? How do I um, deal with God's Word, and how can I apply it to certain situations? You can think of the failure of the Catholic Church. Um, the Catholic Church early on, and you can kind of trace this in church history, moved towards a, um, you know, the, the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. That's what he is. So... What they, would start, what they started to do was early on, whereas every person knew Scripture, we're told in Colossians, this is a one another passage, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting one another with wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, all with grace in your hearts to God. So letting God's word dwell within you richly, abundantly, I mean, if you think of the state of the church, it's like, I don't know that I would describe this. Remember, we talked about how we have to send people to school yeah. to get this. But here we're being told every person needs to have this and, and have access to this. Well, the Catholic Church got away from that. It's, we can't all know God's Word. So let's just entrust the Bishop of Rome to know Scripture, the Bishop of Ephesus, the, the Bishop of Colossae, all these different bishops, and they'll meet together and have their councils, because they know God's word. But it's so much better if everybody knows God's word. So then when the Bishop of Rome says something like, hey, you have to start paying indulgences to us or whatever, people can say, uh -uh, I don't think so. And that's why the Protestant Reformation was so important in the, in the translating of God's word into the common language, because by the time the Middle Ages, they, they didn't even understand. Up until, like, what, the 60s, the Catholic Church still did the Mass in Latin. So it was like... You didn't understand scripture. So unless you were reading it in your own language, you didn't know it. You didn't understand it. You didn't know what it said. They could tell you anything. So, and not only having it is important, understanding it and being able to apply it is important. The same can be said of the Great Awakening um, in the 1800s in America, when kind of the big tent preachers and evangelists. If you look at, like, 
like the um, <clears throat> D.L. Moody was later in the 19th century, but those kind of tent circuit riding preachers, back when like Chicago was like 6,000 people, you know, a major booming metropolis, but still only 6,000 people, these tent preachers would draw thousands and thousands of people. I mean, you just imagine, this is like Billy Graham type crusades where millions of people are watching it, millions of people are either there, you know, either there or in person, but the same thing happened in the Great Awakening as thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to Christ, but there was no knowledge of God's word, so what started cropping up was Jehovah's Witness type cults, Mormons, all these different cults because you just hand somebody, here you go, lead a church now because you've been saved and whatever, but they don't know God's word, uh, bad things result. So Hebrews 4.12 is also an important one. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the point of dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow. It is able to judge the desires and thoughts of the heart. So scripture, like a, like a sword, can just cut right to the heart of the matter. But like a sword, if you don't know how to use a sword, and you're just swinging it around wildly, you're likely to you know, stab yourself with it or something. You just think of like Darth Maul with his double-edged you know, <laughs> lightsaber. He's like cut himself in half or something. Um, so we have to know how, I mean, what we're seeing is God's word is eternally important. And it's a tool, but a tool in the wrong hands is dangerous. And then the failure of postmodern thinking, this is kind of where we're at. Um, so postmodernism, if you're not familiar with the concept, is just this idea that truth isn't absolute. Truth is relative. There is no such thing as absolute truth. It's your truth and my truth and your lived experience and my lived experience. And, well, yeah, that's true for you, but, you know, that's not really true for me. Eh, that's not my truth. I don't resonate with that. And this is a philosophical movement that's been gaining steam for decades. And now it's, it's right in the forefront of where our culture's at. So without proper hermeneutics, which postmodernism is really, it started as a literary critique, as a way of studying literature. You could read Shakespeare in a postmodern view and say, well, what I really think Shakespeare's talking about is, you know, the oppression of the black man and Europe and what, you know, whatever. You can just kind of come up and think, or it's about lesbian dance theory and, you know, that's what really Shakespeare's writing about. And it's like, Shakespeare didn't even know anything about that. What are you talking about? But that's what postmodernism is, and I can read it through any lens I want. Well, without proper hermeneutics, that type of thinking gets applied to the Bible, and it's just like, well, you know, this Bible's whatever you think it means. It's like, well, no, it's not true. So we got to reject that kind of thinking. Um, here another emphasis uh, in the armor of God, Ephesians six seventeen, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The only offensive weapon in the armor of God is the word. And so we have to know how to use it. Um, crossing the river of interpretation. This imagery has stuck with me since Bible school. And, and so I want to delve into it because it's, it's helpful to, I think, have a visual of understanding the process of interpreting the Bible. And, and it's helpful to me to think in terms of this imagery. So, and we'll delve into each one of these kind of parts here. But what questions do you ask when you read the Bible? You sit down, you open the Bible. What question do we typically ask? What does this mean to me? What is God trying to tell me? What's God saying to me here? It's the wrong question to start asking. That's not right. That's a, 
It's not a bad question to ask, but it's a wrong first question to ask. That's for sure. So what does God mean to me? Now, what does God mean to me? Or what does God's word mean to me? This is here in this process of crossing this river. So it's not a bad question. But the question we need to ask is, what did this mean to the original audience? That's the first question. In this process of interpreting God's word, what did this verse, this passage, this chapter, this book, what was its original meaning to the people that it was written to? That's the first question we have to ask in hermeneutics. And this is the literal, historical, grammatical approach is what we're going to be emphasizing. So what do we mean when we talk about this? Literal means that God's word says what it says and it means what it says. Now that doesn't necessarily help us because anyone can think what they want about scripture and say, well, see, God's word says it and it says it, so that's what it means. But we have to really decide what, you know, it's, what, what the meaning is. But it's literal. It isn't spiritual. It's not symbolic. It's not like, oh, you know, God's word talks about, you know, Noah and flood or whatever but you know what that's just metaphorical for the problems of this world and you need to protect yourself and take care of your family that's that's all what it means it's just symbolic just spiritual now there are symbolic and spiritual language and things used in scripture but when we look at scripture from just that standpoint of oh it doesn't really matter whether jesus and this is a big question that rob bell um he raises the question does it really matter whether jesus mother whether Jesus was really born of a virgin or whether he had an earthly father. I mean, does that really matter? Yes. Well, yeah. And so that's what we're talking about. It's literal. This doesn't take away from different genres and types. You know, when we get into poetry and talk about how to interpret poetry, obviously poetry doesn't use literal language. It uses symbolic language, but it's still convening or conveying rather a literal message. Historical means that we realize these events happened in a historical context. When David said, God, can I build you a temple? And God said, no, because you're a man of war and you got too much blood on your hands, so you're not going to do this. Like, understanding, okay, well, what is all going on? That happened at a specific point in a specific time in history, and those things matter, and they inform, just like any other piece of literature. When you read Shakespeare, and you understand, if you read, like, Julius Caesar, and you don't understand anything about the life of Julius Caesar and the fall of the Republic and the rise of the Roman Emperor and Empire and all that, you don't understand the historical context in which that play is written. <clears throat> so the same is true of Scripture. And this is where I think commentaries help. Because I don't know what it was like in, you know, first century Palestine. And so a lot of people have done a lot of work and we should avail ourselves of that. Um, uh, I've shared this example with some of you before. This book, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, gives a perfect example of um, understanding things in the historical context. In this book, it's about how we're Westerners and we read the Bible through our bias. And we'll talk about in another lecture how we can't really get rid of our biases, but we have to be aware of them and understand them. But he talked about how the story of the prodigal son and Europe, which, you know, or England, a Western country, no less than America. But um, they had 100 students, and they all broke up into, like, groups of three, four people each. And their task was to read the story of the prodigal son and then come back and retell the story, give a synopsis, and tell what the story was about. And they said, the author said that 
of the 100 students all came back and they told the story and they left out one important detail. There were three students who were from Africa and they all included the detail that what was it that finally brought the prodigal son to his knees and was a straw that broke the camel's back and sent him back to the father. A famine hit. And when I read this in the book, I was like, oh yeah, I didn't even really think about that. None of the Westerners recalled that little fact. But people from Africa, where famine is a very real reality, that stuck out to them. So in the historical context of the parable that Jesus told, the famine was really important, but it's not as important to us. So we have to be aware of those kinds of things. And grammatical means that we use common sense reading, just like any other text. In any other text, if an author is repeating something, for instance, a word gets repeated over and over again, they're using hyperbole to really emphasize something, we're using proper grammar, proper understanding to read scripture. So basically, literal historical grammatical is saying we're reading the Bible like you read any other book. I mean, we understand that it's different than other books, but you read it the same way that you would read Harry Potter or any other book. You don't read it thinking, well, you know, I think Harry Potter, I mean, he's not really a real person in the story. and He's just a symbol. He's just a symbol of, you know, it's like, no, he's a character in a story and all that kind of stuff. So you read it a certain way. Um, so we'll analyze uh, these different things, but we understand that there's styles, genres, figures of speech, word emphasis, and etc. Um, so looking at this first step in this, call it crossing the principalizing bridge, crossing this bridge to interpret scripture. What did the text mean to the original, original audience? This is step one. Not open the Bible and ask, what does this mean to me? But what did it mean to the original audience? So questions to ask is, who is the audience? In the epistles, it's kind of easy. Ephesians was written to the Ephesians, people in Ephesus. Romans written to people in Rome and so forth. But, and this is important to understand too, that the scriptures were written for everybody, but they weren't written to everybody. They were written to specific people in specific context. Again, that doesn't mean that they don't apply to everybody. But they were written to specific people. The book of Leviticus. I mean, we just plowed through that, slogged through that book. That was written to a specific audience. The Jewish people who had just come out of Israel. They were going ready to start their country. And that was who the audience was. Here are the rules that I have for you. That was the audience. <clears throat> Who's the speaker? So this is important. Um, uh, if you were to read in Luke chapter 4... And say, hey, look, scriptures say, jump off the top of this building. God's going to protect you. So it doesn't say it in scripture, doesn't it? Yeah, but who was the speaker? Satan. <laughs> you don't want to listen to Satan. That's, that's, those are the wrong people to listen to. So who's the speaker? What is the genre? So we'll talk about this later, but reading an epistle, you interpret differently than if you're reading the Psalms. They're songs. They use different style of language. And then where in biblical history does this take place? This is, will be important when Phil teaches the, just the story of the Bible. It's important to know. If you're reading Second Kings, and it says Manasseh was a king who did evil such and such, whatever, where in biblical history does that fall? If you're reading about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, okay, he's being thrown in by Persian kings, 
Where, where is that in biblical history? I mean, that stuff matters. And a meaning to us can't violate the meaning of the original audience. Otherwise, we're just into postmodernism post at that point. Well, this means something to me, but I mean, it never really meant that, but this is what it means to me. <clears throat> so this passage often gets maligned, but it's a classic passage. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. So people will take that verse and say, I like that. You know, I like this idea that God's going to prosper me and nothing bad's going to happen. But if you were to ask certain questions, well, who's the audience? It's God speaking to the tribe of Judah. So it's God as the speaker. What's the genre? It's a prophetic book. Where in biblical history does this take place? It takes place as the Jewish people are about to be conquered by Babylon and taken into captivity and punished for their sins for 70 years. And in Jeremiah, what's, be, what's happening is you've got false prophets saying, this is not a big deal. You know, this is what Jeremiah and the prophets of God are saying, but we don't have to listen to them. And God's saying, no, I know what I have planned for you. And part of that is you're going to Babylon for 70 years and you're going to be servants, but I will bring you back and I've got a plan for you. So it's important to understand those kinds of things uh, when we look at this stuff. Um, the second one is, how wide is the river that we're trying to cross? What are the differences between you and the original audience? Is it in the Old Testament or the New Testament? That matters. Is it written to people under the Old Covenant, or is it written to Christians under the New Covenant? This becomes really important when you get into the Gospels, and you know you go from Malachi chapter 4, you turn the page, there's a page that says New Testament, and then you turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we think, well, look, Matthew's talking to the rich young ruler, or he's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he's telling Christians you got to do. But if you really understand Jesus' teaching under the old covenant there, the new covenant did not start until after his death, burial, and resurrection. So he's teaching under the old covenant. So that's a difference between us and the audience that we have to take into consideration. <clears throat> Where in biblical history does it occur? So the time at which it's happening. What was the cultural context and how similar or different is it to ours? Um, we were just talking about this recently. I was talking about this with some people. In Romans chapter 13, when Paul's talking about submitting to the government, we understand that we do live under a different government than Paul wrote, or wrote under. I mean, we live under a republic. We have certain rights that... We're not given to us by our government. Our government has enshrined in law that those rights are ours from God, and they're there to protect it. So that's the law of the land. So that does raise some interpretational differences. We don't, we're not under a dictator. Now, that doesn't mean that America, the republic, can't fall, and we fall under a dictator, and then at which case we're like, oh, our situation is now more similar to Paul's than it is now. So those are just things we have to wonder. And then what are the similarities? So this is just measuring. But this is where you're asking a lot of the questions of the text is in this step. You've just, you're looking for the original meaning and you're asking questions. <clears throat> An example, Psalm 51.10. We just read this this week. Create for me a pure heart, O God. Renew a resolute spirit within me. Do not reject me. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. If you read that and you don't understand 
Okay, this is David talking. This is David talking after he committed his sin with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. So he just fell into some pretty gross sin. And he's, he's praying with, to God to not take his Holy Spirit away from him. And he's praying under this old covenant way of thinking. And this old covenant living where the Holy Spirit didn't come and permanently indwell people. He came upon people and he would leave people. And so David's praying, God, don't abandon me. Don't forsake me. Well, we're told under the new covenant, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So that's a difference between us and David. Crossing the bridge. So we've asked the, what did this mean? Was really being said to the audience? What are the major differences? So now we're going to cross that river. And this is where you, you pull out what is the theological principle that you've discovered after analyzing the text. You're not creating the meaning or creating this theological principle. You're discovering it. You're finding what it was. And a theological principle should be reflected in the text. You're not going to read something out of the text and just infer theological meaning upon it. You're going you're gonna to find it. It's timeless and it's not culturally bound. So uh, the, well, what that says, that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago, and then we just kind of just ignore what that passage is saying. It's like, no, we may have to dig a little deeper, find the principle that does apply to us, and then carry that along with us. But, and it has to also correspond with all of Scripture. You can't walk away with a theological interpretation that contradicts something else in Scripture. God does not contradict himself. The word doesn't contradict itself. So going back to again, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I have plans to give you a hope, a future filled with hope. So I don't like when Christians say, oh, that, doesn't apply to, that doesn't apply to us. No, it wasn't written to us. We're not the immediate audience, but it does apply to us. So then you would ask questions like, okay, well, what was the context? Okay, this is Israel in this context, and this is what's happening to them or whatever. What's God promising? God's promising, hey, I've given my word that I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to, I've given you my word that I'm going to watch over you, that I'll protect you, that all this kind of stuff. God's made specific promises to the nation of Israel. And God's saying, listen, I'm, I'm not, I, I know what's going to happen. And basically, I have you securely in my hand. I've, so, a theological principle might, might be something like, God knows us. He knows the plans he has for us, which we're told in Scripture is to conform us to the image of his Son. God uses everything to, for the good to conform us to the image of his Son. So, when terrible things happen in life, you could look at Jeremiah twenty nine eleven and claim that as a promise, not necessarily that God's going to exile you to Babylon, but then bring you back and plant you into the land of Israel, but that God, hey, God has a plan. And that plan, I know, is to use this thing for my good, to conform me to the image of his son. <clears throat> and then applying the text in our town, so to speak. This is, the, this is where most Christians start. You open up, and what does this mean to me? Well, if you haven't answered any of those other questions, you're, you, you may end up in the wrong spot. But this is where the theological principle become, becomes concrete. You take that broad theological principle that God keeps his word and his promises to his children. To the Israelites, it was one thing. 
to us, he's promised us different things. But this is where it becomes practical and very concrete. And this is when you can ask, okay, here's the crappy situation that I find myself in. How does this principle apply to my life? <clears throat> so while the theological principle is universal, the applications are as numer numerous as there are people. Again, it has to correspond with the principle, but it's your situation is different than my situation. So what God is speaking and saying to you is going to be different than what he's speaking and saying to me. But he'll use the same word and the same scripture and the same principles. <clears throat> and I've heard it complained that like when you read the Bible this way, it, it seems rigid. And you're just telling me that the Bible just means one thing and can't mean anything different. And it seems like you're limiting what God can say to us. I find the opposite to be true. When, when we open the Bible and people just say, well, well just, this is what it means to me. And so and it's, you just kind of think, oh, that doesn't really correspond with what Scripture says. Like, and then everyone kind of just has their own opinion of what it means and what they think it means. Whatever. To me, I find that pointless. But when you look at Scripture this way, it actually makes it come to life. It's, wow, this is actually what God intended. This is actually what God is saying in his word. And it becomes exciting because it then becomes applicable. You can read a book like Numbers, <laughs> chapters 1 through 10, and think, this doesn't mean anything to me. But if you look into it, it's like, wow, this is actually where it says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. for. You're able to say, okay, I know God's word is living and active. There's something here for me to find. And what is it? So I find it a lot more exciting to look at scripture this way well faith and focus is a ministry of in faith the views and opinions expressed in this podcast don't necessarily reflect the views and opinions of in faith as a mission if you like what you heard on this episode why don't you become a monthly supporter of the ministry it really helps me out ten dollars a month or whatever the lord lays on your heart so if you're interested in becoming a partner uh, you can text the word discipleship to four one Four four four, or head over to infaith.org backslash Dennis dash Sotherby. And if you have any questions or topics that you would like me to address on a future episode of Faith and Focus, why don't you shoot me an email? You can email me at Dennis Sotherby at infaith.org. Just put in the subject line question for Faith and Focus or something like that. Uh, so I can see it, know that it's from you. And know that it's an issue that you'd like me to address. 